The following podcast is taken from a live broadcast on Inspire FM. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to uh, Friday Night Live. You're listening to uh, Inspire FM. Uh, 105.1 FM. This is like Friday night, Friday night Live. My name is Zafar Iqbal. Today is the 6th of September 2019. Friday, 6th of September 2019. And if you're listening to the repeat on Saturday, uh, the lines are closed. It's better not to, to call in with your comments because it's too late. No, we'll be here to answer your call. Right, okay, uh, it's going to be like every week, an action-packed show today for you. A uh, couple of differences that you'll notice today. We've got uh, proper people of calibre supporting me today. It's not just me rambling on. Uh, we have Chris Nichols. He's the retired principal, or recently retired principal of Sixth Form College, who's co-hosting with me today as well. Hi, Chris. Good evening, lovely to be here. Welcome to Friday Night Live. Uh, and also... Um, Sometimes a regular co-presenter, Abu Bakr Cooper. He's there. He's a science teacher. Assalamualaikum, Abu Bakr. Waalaikumsalam. Lovely to be here again. Excellent, excellent. You always pick the good days to come. You know when there's action-packed uh, topics to discuss. I know. It's, it, it's like each time over the, over the last uh, couple of months, uh, I keep honing in on something interesting is going on with Brexit, and yeah. I'm like, here, and I think, oh my god, it doesn't matter how tired I am. The end of the week, I think, oh. Yeah. Excellent, good stuff, good yeah. stuff. I think it's uh, it's uh, looking to be it's like it's going to be a good show today, inshallah. Okay, so uh, like every week, uh, we have a number of topics we discuss. Uh, usually half an hour or an hour long. Uh, we do have an hour long hour long topic today. Uh, as you might have noticed, there's lots of things happening uh, in our parliament. Lots of people. Uh, protesting and lots of people sort of arguing over different things. Um, so we do have an hour-long Brexit show uh, from 6.30 to 7.30 today, inshallah. We've got uh, a plethora of, of talented people who know the ins and outs, professors and and doctors uh, from their particular sort of fields uh, of research in universities, etc. I'm sure they're going to give us a really intellectual view as to uh, what is happening in the parliament so stay tuned 6.30 to 7.30 inshallah that's, uh, that's uh, the Brexit the latest on Brexit I'm sure you're probably well hopefully you're not sick of it but we'll try and give you a different view inshallah. <laughs> a different view uh, mm, okay that's uh, a challenge uh, yes indeed <laughs> indeed uh, and also we've got uh, I think if, there's, if there's any single person in the country that truly understands what's going on that person is completely on their own Indeed, yeah. indeed, indeed. There's there's lots happening, to be honest. Lots, and th- I think there's a couple of people I know who predicted this uh, a year ago. They're saying it's never going to happen. And I was saying, what are you talking about? You know, it's, there was a deadline, right? And uh, deadline passes, and we're going to be out, out of Europe. And he's right. He was right. He was obviously sort of uh, better informed than I was. Uh, okay, at seven thirty as well. We're we're also going to talk about uh, degrees versus apprenticeships. Uh, I know um, a lot of uh, schools have opened up again and colleges have opened up and uh, recent intake of colleges um, and people who are in the second year of college probably thinking about, oh, what should I do? Should I take a, a degree uh, at university or apprenticeship? And then they're probably thinking about loans and being in debt, etc. So we're going to have a session 
uh, inshallah, uh, talking about the various options that are available and pros and cons. And we've got to talk to somebody who's who's taken the apprenticeship route. So stay tuned. That's at 7.30. But uh, we're going to kick off today uh, with, I guess, a continuing theme uh, of Kashmir. Right. So if I give you a little bit of a background uh, as to what's happened. So as you know, uh, uh, last month, beginning of last month, uh, India unilaterally uh, annexed the, the semi-independent state of Kashmir. Semi-independent, I say, because uh, it's uh, unfinished business since 1947. Uh, it, uh, Kashmir has a, a semi-independent status on both sides. It's, it's partitioned, uh, partitioned between Pakistan uh, and India. Uh, so there's there's a section of, of Kashmir in Pakistan and a section of it is in India. Um, the one on the Indian side, the population is unhappy with Indian rule uh, and the intended outcome uh, should have been uh, a referendum which was promised in 1947 as part of the partition deal uh, and that remains unfulfilled uh, to this day. Uh, so uh, instead of fulfilling that particular promise uh, at the UN, uh, India has unilaterally decided to annex uh, Kashmir and split it into two uh, regions, the Ladakh and Jammu uh, Kashmir region, uh, and at the moment is controlled, uh, run directly from the center in Delhi. Uh, now, uh, obviously, the, uh, um, the the response of the community within Kashmir has been uh, quite intense, I guess. Uh, they've opposed this and they have been opposing this for a good number of years. Um, so uh, there has been a com complete security lockdown. So the states of Ladakh, uh, Jammu and Kashmir are in a state of lockdown, in a state of siege, effectively for over a month. And there are sporadic, uh, basically, reports coming from uh, from there, reported in, in the likes of New York Times, which seems to indicate that the life is very difficult there with the siege, with basic necessities uh, becoming unavailable by the day uh, in terms of medicines and, and food, uh, etc. And, and there are indications that there are abuses uh, of human rights taking place uh, as well. Again, sporadic uh, reports. Uh, there is, is a total communications lockdown, so it's very difficult to find out what's happening uh, in that region. Uh, and I guess uh, also in sympathy with those people, there, there is obviously a, a large Kashmiri community uh, in Luton and within UK. Uh, and they have obviously raised their voices at the various forums, uh, you know, through, through political means, through uh, protests, uh, through, uh, I guess, um, uh, and by other means, they have been trying to sort of raise voices of concern, A, at the humanitarian crisis that's looming, and B, about uh, the, the political situation in terms of the annexation uh, of that region. Um, so we have, um, we have somebody uh, who's uh, on the line. So obviously what happened this week was, and we're going to try and get some more details, that uh, a cross-section uh, of the community organizations, political mosques, uh, non-political organizations have got together and, and there was a march last Tuesday uh, which uh, was, there was a sizable turnout I'm told um, and, uh, and there was protests outside the UK Parliament and also outside the Indian High Commission. So we're going to get an update from, from somebody who was at the protest a bit later on. Uh, but we also got somebody on the line who's trying a slightly different route uh, 
we have Naeem Sattar, uh, who's on the line, and he's got a petition going uh, to try and get a question uh, in the Houses of Parliament uh, to, to again raise some concerns. Salaam alaikum, Naeem. Are you, are you on the line? Can you hear me? Wa alaikum salam, brother. Yes, I'm here. How are you? Yeah, alhamdulillah. Welcome to Friday Night Live. Thank you, Zakala, for having me. Uh, so I've just I've just given a, a quick intro as to what's been happening so far. I know there's been lots of protests. I think there's pretty much uh, protest every week uh, in London uh, in support of, of the Kashmiris. Uh, but you uh, have instigated a a petition, uh, which which uh, I, I, I guess if you want to explain the reasons why you want to go down that route rather than perhaps the protests, etc. Yeah, sure. Let me give a bit of background. So, um, like everybody, you know, when this information or this news hit the uh, hit the airwaves, hit the social media, hit everything, you know, in terms of India uh, taking this unilateral um, decision to uh, downgrade Kashmir and remove. Uh, rights of the Kashmiris. And the biggest right they removed was their right to have a referendum and a plebiscite which has been promised to them since 1947. And I, and I can cover that a little later on. But more importantly, the, 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 we needed to do something. Uh, and the, our approach was, well, hang on a second. You know, this is there's two or three concerns that we had. Number one, this is still a mess that's not been cleared up by uh, the, the, the legacy of the of the uh, the British Empire. That's what this is. This is still the yes. remnants of partition, mm -hmm. and uh, the British are, are really need to be involved. Right? They need to be involved in this. So, um, us being British citizens, we've got to use the uh, structures here, the methods here, to try and raise this matter at the highest international level. Sure. Now, if you remember, initially Pakistan was trying to raise this with UN, and they did. But the voices coming through everywhere, well, this is a bilateral issue. This is just between India and Pakistan. Sure. Uh, and technically, based upon the similar agreement from 1971, that was the position. That's where things were left off. But that was 1971. We're now 2019. Uh, that's 40 years on, and these two countries still haven't sorted this mess out. Okay? okay, and the reason they can't sort this mess out is because actually Britain and the international community need to also be involved. Sure. So what we decided to do is that what can we do? So we decided to um, put a petition together at the British Parliament, and that was uh, that was organised uh, middle of August, but it didn't take them. It took them almost three weeks to actually um, get it online. Um, so Alhamdulillah, we've got it online now. And um, it's now doing the rounds in social media and everybody's phones and emails and whatever. And I'll encourage um, everybody to participate and, and to log their, their vote and, and to support this petition. Sure. And you can find it on the petition.parliament.uk website, petition.parliament.uk website. And if you just type in on search for Kashmir, you'll find our petition there, which is quoted as saying, table Kashmir issue before the UN Security Council as an urgent threat to peace. Mm -hmm. So our background, our kind of psyche behind this was that, okay, there's two major issues here. Mm. The first issue is that these are two nuclear armed nations. Yeah. Okay. It's not just a threat to peace in the region. It's a threat to, to peace worldwide. Sure. 
Number two is that the human rights violations taking place out there, which have been independently verified now by the UN Human Rights Commission, they've, they've actually confirmed, with the little information that's coming out, they've confirmed a number of human rights violations. You know, we all know about the internet blockade. We all know about the, you know, there's no communications coming out. Um, but there are other things happening, such as, you know, arbitrary detention, uh, there's punishment and uh, imprisonment of political dissidents, you know, there's extrajudicial, extrajudicial killings and severe injuries, mm -hmm. and this has all been reported by United Nations, so it's independently verified. And this hasn't just been happening now, Zafar, this has been going on for years. Yeah. It's been yeah. going on for years, I mean, you know, and, and so we decided, okay, there's two areas, number one, we don't want a war, Nobody wants a war, sure. okay? Number two is there needs to be a huge, huge outcry with the human rights violations that going on out there, okay? This is unlawful. Mm -hmm. And what makes it worse is that the Indian government uh, enacted a new power called the Armed Forces Special Power Act a few years ago, yeah. which basically gives the Indian army complete impunity. They can do what they want. Mm -hmm. They can do what they want, and no one can say a thing. So, you know, this is uh, these are the things going on out there. And what we wanted to do by launching this petition, it allows us to give this very important threat to world peace a platform, because mm -hmm. it will be debated in Parliament if we get to 100,000 signatures. Right. So a lot of the times, people say, well, what can we do? You know, mm -hmm. we, you know, we all feel, we all feel for what's going on out there. Sure. But here is a chance for everybody now to do something. You know, you can sign this petition, and hopefully, if we get to 100,000 signatures, we will get this thing debated in Parliament. Mm -hmm. But I, I guess that there will be detractors who say, what's the point? I mean, that there's, you know, there have been a few questions about Kashmir already. Uh, what, what difference is this going to make? Well, I think the difference is, good question, I think the difference is that we live in a, a, a different era now. You know, information does come out. You know, we have social media that is a platform where people can see what's going on. And there is little information, there's little but some credible information coming out of that region. Sure. But the most important thing is that you've got two nuclear armed nations here, yeah. okay? The world has to take this seriously. Britain has to take this seriously. Mm -hmm. And as long as, I think that's the important thing is as long as, the population here, not just Muslims, not mm -hmm. just, you know, Pakistanis, but what we're trying to do is that our petition is very broad-reaching. It, mm -hmm. It's about peace, mm -hmm. and it's about human rights violations. We're not saying anything other than that. We said this needs to be resolved because there's a threat to war, sure. and there's, you know, inhumane tactics being carried out by the authorities in Indian-occupied Kashmir. Right. Can I ask what's particular actions do you think the British government could take? You, you've talked about debating it, raising awareness, uh, which is always a start, but do you have any ideas of specific action that realistically the British government could take, either, either on its own or in concert with others? Yeah, what they can do, under Article 35 of the UN Charter, any country can bring a matter before the United Nations Security Council as a threat to peace. Any member can do that. So we're going to, that's what we've provided for in our petition. So any country, so United, the United Kingdom, if it debates in Parliament and if we get a consensus, 
then we can take this to United Nations to say that this is a threat to peace and this needs this matter needs to be resolved. What happens after that? You know, and I mm. know... That was my next United question. <laughs> yeah, well, you know what United mm. Nations and what they've achieved, yeah. you know. But they achieved results in Bosnia. You know, they've achieved results in Kosovo. Mm. Uh, so, you know, they, there are results that they can achieve, but there needs to be the will of first the people in the country. So we have to lobby our parliamentary representatives mm. to look. This is an important issue because there's, there's almost three million... Uh, Britons who trace their ancestry back to uh, India-Pakistan. Right? So this is a concern for us. Mm. And it should be a concern for Indian origin people as well, not just us. But, you know, there's a threat to peace there. Okay, It's not about who can win the war and who's got the biggest army and who's got the smallest army and we've got more nukes than you. There's going to be severe damage to mm. two developing countries in the whole of that region. And Indeed. we can't afford to have that. Simple as that. And we've got to get that case over to our parliamentarians, who then are going to deliver that case at the UN National Assembly. Indeed. Okay. I mean, so so in terms of what you're after with this petition is is actually a debate rather than a question in Parliament, right? Yeah. So what happens if you look at the parliamentary website? Any when you get to hundred thousand signatures, it will be considered for debate in Parliament. Okay. Okay. So then that's where we, as the general public, have to get in write to your MP, tell them, look, there's this petition on, I'm supporting it, I want you to support it, and I want you to raise it at the highest level in the UK Parliament. That's what we've got to do. So that's the bit that, and that's the easy bit, really, because the hard bit is getting the petition up. So we've done that. Mm. Now the people, your listeners and people around the country have got to start talking to their MPs and say, look, this is really important for me. And you know what, this is an ideal time to do that, because, you know, parliamentarians are going to be knocking on your board doorstep very soon. Could be an election so soon coming out. Okay, now, now, I, I've got I've got another caller. I, I need to give some time to. Uh, perhaps perhaps uh, the next question really would be how, how does one get hold of this petition really? And that's yeah, very simple. Just just go to the. Um, I mean, I can send you the link, and you can put it on your uh, sure. Inspire website if you want. But basically, it's, it's just typing, just Google parliamentary petitions. Yeah. And if you once you get to the Parliament petition website, hmm. um, you type in Kashmir in the search box, and and you'll see. Uh, you'll see two petitions. There's another petition for someone uh, for asking for pressure on India um, to to call an end to the um, uh, blockade. Yeah. Sure. Um, but this, the main petition is this one, and we're over sort of seven and a half thousand signatures now in just three days. So okay. you know we're, we're having an impact, sure. and okay. we need more. We need to get to hundred thousand. Okay, sure, sure. Okay, name, name. Uh, you're welcome to stay online. A name. I've got I've got Safar Khan, right, who was in our program last week. Uh, and, and he's basically, he was uh, uh, basically on, in the protests last week. Uh, and mm. I just wanted to, uh, sorry, this week, I just wanted to get an update. Uh, Salam alaikum, Zafar Saab. Thank you for joining Friday Night Live. Uh, I, I understand you were at the march uh, on on Tuesday, and I just wanted to sort of get your feedback in terms of what... what uh, 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 Zafar Saab, I, I could not uh, I could not attend uh, participate in the march for, uh, for some personal reason. Okay. Uh, but uh, it was a, a tremendous march. Yes, it was a it was a tremendous show of solidarity by the uh, by the Kashmiris and uh, and uh, their their supporters in this country on on Tuesday. Right. Uh, and and have you got any information in terms of what? Uh, um, you know, I guess what the outcome do you expect from the march? It, was, was it seen as a positive thing? Did it send a message or...? Uh, 
yes 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 uh, i i think uh, uh, i think this march was a very successful march it showed uh, uh, the uh, unity of the community and it also assured that the kashmiri uh, kashmiri people were very serious uh, and they wanted to uh, um, express their uh, their uh, um, their disgust at, at the way that uh, their country has been uh, disintegrated and uh, um, and annexed by india uh, against international law and against uh, uh, all the other um, uh, existing uh, principles uh, and you say you say it showed unity now this uh, this was organized by uh, a plethora of different organizations right it was organized by i guess the mosques participated in this as well this uh, yeah yeah this uh, this march was organized by people uh, throughout the, throughout britain uh, in in this town uh, you know mosques were mobilized um, ulama were mobilized ordinary people were mobilized and so it was a you know that's uh, that that was a very positive aspect of this march because it was uh, it was uh, you know the organizers also were a collective of uh, political groups uh, who engaged with uh, all sections of uh, of uh, uh, muslim and uh, pakistani kashmiri community in particular uh, and so in in all in all it was a, it was it was a march uh, that was a, um, a, a you know a very uh, unified uh, expression of the of the Kashmiris uh, and their supporters in this country. And uh, of course, I mean, you, you being an activist for the Kashmiris, hailing from Kashmir, uh, what what do you think uh, is is the is the momentum still there to continue and hold more? Oh yes, marches? of course. Oh yes, of course, of course. I I think uh, you know we've had two very big, uh, large markets. This one again, uh, independent. Uh, media reports are saying that there were perhaps uh, as many as 15000 people sure. also on 15th of august uh, perhaps uh, a similar number of people so these are you know these these are really substantial marches substantial demonstrations uh, other smaller demonstrations have taken up uh, up and down this country uh, involving uh, uh, people in their hundreds uh, you know in this town uh, in fact uh, 1500 people uh, a couple of weeks ago Uh, in uh, places like Birmingham, Bradford, Manchester, Wakefield, you know, Rochdale, Oldham, Oldham this Saturday and uh, tomorrow, uh, and and you know, uh, lots and lots of people coming out at uh, at sort of local level, and I I think um, there is um, there is room for uh, uh, marches and demonstrations, but also other alternative kind of engagement and activism by uh, the Kashmiris and their supporters in this country, and I think. Uh, uh this uh, there is a, a lot of momentum there out there uh, and and the people need to actually uh, just to seize seize on on that mm. and i and i guess i think you uh, name names on the call as, as well and he's started a petition basically calling for united nations intervention so i guess from, from yourself from you being an activist in in, that, in this particular field what what other avenues uh, are being explored in order to well, well i i think yeah well, this petition is a good idea uh, and uh, you you get 100000 as as i heard heard you heard uh, heard your uh, uh, contributor towards the end yeah naim and 100000 and you you'll get a debate in the house of commons that is the, that is a wonderful thing to do and and of course you need to engage uh, at at the government level at the uh, parliamentary level as well and that we are doing and we need to continue that we need to actually uh, ensure and put pressure on the british government and the british government uh, uh, is wanting um, in terms of uh, its responses here british government has not done 
as much as it is uh, uh, supposed to do as a, as a permanent member of the Security Council. And the fact that there are 3 million South Asians here who have a direct interest in peace uh, and, um, uh, and justice, uh, and there are hundred, uh, a, million, a million Kashmiris there. Who have a direct Zafar. interest? Uh, yeah. Sure, sure, sure. Nafa, can I just come in yeah. there? What, what sure. brother's saying is actually really, really relevant. Mm -hmm. That it, it, this, this is a legacy from the from, from the British Empire, and and in particular, it was Lord Mountbatten, mm -hmm. Lord Mountbatten, yeah. in his letter to the um, uh, to to Maharaja Sahib, to to the Maharaja of the Princess State of Kashmir. Have you seen? Yeah. Says, yeah. He says. He says that this needs to be decided by the people. Mm. It was in his letter dated 27th yeah. of October 1947. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. this has never been done, right? Mm. And, and it was Lord Mountbatten that made this commitment, and on that basis it acceded to India. Yeah. And yeah. really, we need to take this back to the British government, and that's why the brother on the front, on the, your, your colleague at the, front front the protest, Zafar Khan Saab. Zafar Khan Saab, may I say, Get whatever your networks are that are involved in the protest. If you have 15,000 people, 20,000 people, whatever, please get them to sign this petition because we need to get to 100,000 signatures. Yeah, and that yeah, should yeah. not be a problem if there's, you know, circa 1 million, 2 million Muslims right. in this country. It should not be a problem. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to draw the discussion to a close. I'm just running out of time now. So I want to thank you yeah, both, yeah. Naim and Zafar Saf, for, for coming on uh, short notice. <laughs> okay, Zafar Thank you for your contribution. Jazakallah. Thank you, thank thank you very much. I, I'm actually in a, in, a, in, a, in a sort of meeting that is talking about Kashmir. Okay. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. All right, listeners, okay, uh, we're going to take a short break and we'll be back after these short messages. Stay tuned for the Brexit discussion. You're listening to an Inspire FM podcast, making available our popular programs from our daily broadcast on Inspire FM. Welcome back. You're listening to Inspire FM 105.1 FM. This is Friday Night Live. My name is Zafar. And with me in the studio today, uh, co-presenting is Abu Bakr Cooper and Chris Nichols, uh, recently retired principal of Sixth Form College. We're honoured to have people of such high calibre today with us today. Uh, and we're hoping that the discussion is going to be equally uh, of high calibre. We hope so, uh, inshallah. So uh, the next topic of discussion uh, is... Well, it's Brexit, actually. You can't escape it, can you? Uh, I mean, every every news out that you can think about is talking about Brexit. Uh, I'm not I'm not sure uh, people... Our, 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 our complete lack of government. Because um, we don't... We, 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 have, we have someone that is occupying 10 Downing Street who, who, who doesn't actually have to pay rent, but he's not actually running the government. The government isn't the government anymore. That's yes, and because that's, that's part since he since he since he's since he's um, supposedly taken charge, each vote that he has been master of, uh, should I say, he's lost. Mm, indeed, and Parliament has taken control of government. So, uh, so I, the, I think so. The government is not actually governing. No, that's mm. Theresa May wasn't in control either, so this, this goes back a while now, this 
failure yeah. of government, breakdown of the system. So uh, is, am I right in thinking that now it's, it's actually a minority government with, with his brother leaving? Well, it was a minority government well, uh, a, during his very first speech because one of, his, mm. one of the MPs crossed, stood up and, during his speech and, and, and very pointedly walked across the House <laughs> and sat with the Liberal Democrats and that was his majority went within literally minutes of him starting in the House of Commons. Mm. Wow. It's pretty spectacular. Uh, we're, 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 hop- we're hoping to get a... F- uh, we're talking about basically what's been happening recently, so I think we're hoping to get a full, full if, spectrum. If ever you could have a dagger in the back, <laughs> would you have ever anticipated it would be such a quiet, silent dagger of your brother just quietly leaving like Well, I, I have a theory on that, and we'll discuss it a little bit later. I, I, think, it was a, I think it was a question of whether... Whether the brother sacked him or he basically resigned, isn't it? It's one of those things, isn't it? Because he was one of the one of the MPs, right? Was down to be, you know. Do you know if Jeffrey if Jeffrey Archer if Jeffrey Archer had written this into any one of his books, yeah. Uh, if the listeners don't know, um, um, Jeffrey Archer is is a is a Lord Archer as he is now is is a previous um, uh, Conservative MP. MP. And um, um, in in his uh, later years, he started um, writing novels, and he became extremely successful. Um, if li- listeners don't know, I mean, if Lord Archer had written this in one of his novels, something going on like this, you would, seriously, seriously, I am not kidding. No one would be- have believed it if this was the, a, a script in a play or in a movie or or, or, or a chapter I- in a book that this would be happening to the prime minister. And da, 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 da. Oh, it's, it, it beggars, but honestly, I, I really don't... Uh, right, OK, I, I've got a couple of guests on, right? I think I want to give a little bit of a broader background, right, onto the topic. I know we started talking about the the, the very recent events, yeah, but I just want to cap basically uh, recap on what's happened during the week. Uh, but staying, I guess, with the, the theme of what's happening currently, I've got Catherine uh, Rout, who's uh, who's an MEP for the Green Party on the line. Uh, Catherine, well, welcome to Inspire FM, Friday Night Live. Uh, can you hear me? Hello, uh, it's nice to be with you. Yes, uh, and I, I understand you're outside the Parliament and you're protesting about something. Yeah, I've been outside Parliament. I'm now actually on the train uh, heading back home again. Okay, can you tell us what, what, what that was about? What's uh... um, So, yeah, so um, there's been a um, gathering outside Parliament to defend our parliamentary democracy every day this week. Yeah, and, uh, and uh, this is people who are... Um, concerned about the fact that Boris Johnson uh, has tried to silence the voice of our representatives um, by suspending Parliament for five weeks at the time of national crisis. So, so we're particularly concerned that this was not the moment uh, for MPs to be denied a chance to debate and to make decisions. Right, and, and I think that there's been protests every week, uh, every day, haven't there, this week, in terms of... There have been protests every day, yes. Uh, is, this is, is the only time I've been able to get there um, this week because, uh, obviously, I was in Brussels for most of the week, uh, but I got back yesterday, late yesterday evening, and I've been down at the arms fair um, campaigning against the arms trade okay. uh, in uh, East London uh, this this morning. Catherine, can I ask what your view is on, on the um, outcomes of the legal cases, um, that, that, the ruling that uh, it's not unlawful for, um, for the Prime Minister to have prorogued Parliament 
for for the five weeks. Well, I I, um, I, I can see that uh, you know sort of on the technicalities of the constitution, uh, the prime minister can prorogue parliament uh, when he thinks that he needs to have a, a new queen's speech. So um, naturally, some of the legal uh, challenges would come up with the result that you know this is something that prime ministers have the right to do. They mm. can ask the queen to do it. Um, and it's normal for the Queen to agree to do it. Hmm. Uh, the the problem in this case is that it doesn't appear at all that it uh, was intended to be the normal kind of thing, hmm. Hmm. Um, but rather that it was timed precisely because it didn't want Parliament to have any say about how we should leave the European hmm. Union. So you're not particularly surprised at the outcome then in, in terms of, of the legal judgment? I'm not particularly surprised at the outcome of those uh, legal challenges. Uh, I think there are some more in the process, if I understand it rightly. Um, so, you know, that's not the end of the story. But in any case, um, uh, the fact remains that it's the most irresponsible act of a Prime Minister who has no consideration for democracy because Parliament is there to make careful decisions and scrutinise but do, uh, do, 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 them. Do, do you think these protests are going to make any difference, to be honest? Because I think the, the way things are going no, at I the moment, the, the way things are, uh, you know, really heated up and the, the, there's polarisation, I guess. Are, is anybody going to look at the protests at all? Um, uh, I'm sorry, I didn't quite catch that. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking, yeah. are protests going to make any difference? It, it, uh, so it's, um, it's, it's fortunate that the um, Parliament has been able to uh, do some damage limitation this week um, and um, legislate uh, to prevent the Prime Minister from taking us out of the European Union without a deal because um, that means that uh, we shall have to have a further discussion of what kind of relationship with the EU we want to have in the future. Uh, and and, uh, and the crucial thing was to make sure that he didn't do something drastic uh, without scrutiny. Mm. Do you think we're looking at the return of, uh, of something very close to, to Theresa May's uh, original deal? Um, well, I mean, obviously that's one of the deals, uh, that was the deal that the Conservatives worked out, and that seems to be what Conservatives thought they wanted, though not all of them wanted it, and many people don't want it. Uh, the Labour Party thinks that they might try some different kind of deal. I think it's highly likely that uh, there is no uh, deal that you can even imagine that would uh, actually be successful and deliver the kind of Brexit that people were hoping for. So... Um, it, 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 it depends which people, people, doesn't it? That's the point. Yeah. <laughs> you know, some mm. people might be ho hoping for that, but other people were hoping mm. for something completely the opposite. So I think it's very unlikely that uh, it will be at all quick to find something that commands the majority. Brilliant. Okay. Uh, Catherine, we're going to let you go and, and uh, go home uh, peacefully in your journey home. Thank you very much for your contribution today. I think, I think it's been useful. Okay, Just thank you very much. Thank you indeed. Bye. Thank you. Right. Uh, we do also have uh, on online is Professor Catherine Barnard, who's a professor Hello, of European Union, uh, European Union Law at University of Cambridge. Uh, hi, Catherine. Hi there. How are you? 
Good, good. Thank you very much. Welcome to Fortnite Live. Thank you very much for taking the time out to have a discussion with us today. Uh, I wanted to first of all ask an intellectual question, if I may. Uh, just put an intellectual hat on, if I if I possibly can. I'm not sure I'm capable of, but I'll try. Uh, so, uh, pro rogue. I mean, that the term doesn't really ring a bell in my mind at all. Uh, presumably, yeah. is is some sort of an instrument. Uh, that was, I, I guess, made available to Parliament many years ago, but it's used for a different purpose, right? Yeah, it, it simply means suspend. Uh -huh. And uh, it, it, what's special about it, it's part of the royal prerogative. Mm -hmm. uh, but because we live in a constitutional monarchy, the Queen no longer um, decides of her own initiative whether to prorogue. She acts on advice of her ministers, and particularly her Prime Minister. Sure. And that's why there was a little trip to Scotland by... Um, not least uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg and a couple of others, just asked the Queen to formally prorogue Parliament. Mm. Now, at one level, prorogue just means suspend, and mm. it happens every year. Yes. Um, apart from last year, when we had a, um, a two-year Parliament, but generally it happens every year, and it just means that one parliamentary session comes to an end, there's a Queen's speech, it resets the clock, and another parliamentary session starts. Okay, and, and that... Unusual... Sorry, go is that this time it's for five, five weeks. Usually it's for a matter of a few days. Right, okay. And the, what the consternation is this time, it's, it's because it's a matter of um, five weeks, not just um, three or four days. Right, okay. And, and, and I did read somewhere that that, that particular instrument is used uh, for things like party conferences and stuff like that uh, to allow... Uh, allow Parliament to, to carry on and, and you know be suspended for a little bit, but for the members to have uh, go off on conferences is that is that right or no? Actually, that's not quite right. It's it's very easy to be confused over this because they okay. happen at the same time. But that would be going into recess. Okay. Um, but the big difference between recess, i.e., what we, you and I might call a break, mm -hmm. and prorogation, suspension, is that recess the MPs vote on and they vote on the length of their holiday or their break. Right, and okay. it was thought that this year they would vote for a short recess so mm -hmm. that they could have a short period of time off for the party conference season. Mm -hmm. um, however, in the case of prorogation of Parliament, i.e. suspension of Parliament, MPs don't vote on it. It's a matter for the Queen acting on advice of the, her ministers. Okay, yeah. all right. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's been the whole issue because exactly. this, this whole... Uh, way of doing things is completely unprecedented because it has happened in the time where things should be being debated and the, the checks and balances which parliament itself has and this is and the word sovereign uh, literally means um, rule but but our system is is that parliament is sovereign mm. It, literally in terms of the legis legislature so um with without parliament being allowed to sit which they're not allowed to sit when the queen or the you know the the the, the monarch suspends it they cannot put their checks and balances in place mm -hmm. and this is what the issue is is about the length of time mm -hmm. that it's been suspended completely suspended for mm -hmm. and i mean i mean you know if you try to dress a wolf up in sheep's clothing, it's a wolf. Well, has, I, I, and this is the situation here. And it is so clear what has been done. Catherine, can I ask um, the same question to you that I actually just asked of Catherine Rowett about the outcome of the legal challenges? Um, do you find it surprising 
the, the judgment that that it's not unlawful. I mean, what would you have, clearly, this is an area of expertise for you, would, would you have expected the challenge in the first place and do, would you have expected it to have had a reasonable um, chance of being successful? I haven't read the judgment itself. I'm not sure it's been published yet, mm. so I don't know exactly its terms. But mm. what I can say is that I'm not at all surprised that there was a challenge, not least because it seems that Gina Miller had, and her team had been asking the government repeatedly over the summer whether there would be a prorogation, and they'd been told mm. that they would not. Mm-hmm. Um, but nevertheless, they always suspected it might, and so her team had been preparing for some time. On the, uh, in terms of the outcome, the courts are really reluctant to get involved in what are essentially party political matters. And um, it's also what's known as a constitutional convention, and the courts are reluctant to um, rule upon them at all. Um, so I'm not altogether surprised at this outcome. But it's going to the Supreme Court mm. on the 17th, I think, together with the Scottish case, and it will give the Supreme Court a chance to really look into the issue. And what would you, how would you assess the, his prospects there of a different I, I outcome? Would, I would suspect that it would, um, uh, the Supreme Court will also say that um, they won't uphold Gina yeah. Miller's claim. But there is an irony here, and the irony is that um, Boris Johnson prorogued Parliament, he said, um, ostensibly so he can get his domestic legislature, le- legislative agenda through. The trouble is, having got rid of so many um, rebels from the party, it will be almost impossible for him to pass any <laughs> domestic legislation anyway. Yeah. And furthermore, mm. having prorogued Parliament, it means that now he's mm. left without a Parliament to do anything um, mm. in the, the crucial weeks running up to the mm. European Council meeting on the 17th and uh, 18th of October. So t- talk of the Queen's speech and the importance of that is now irrelevant because there's no chance yeah. that it would be passed. And the interesting thing that comes to mind here as well, Professor Barnard, is that if uh, Mr Johnson is eventually somehow, by hook or by crook, get himself an election, the big hard hitters of the party, he's just kicked them all out. <laughs> and this is this is a real a problem now. He you know, the real the real hard hitters that were there so long, eight percent of of his parliamentary MPs, you know, the real stalwarts of the party, people like Ken Clark, uh, you know, father of the house for goodness sake, you know, the real Tory Tories that people would would, would recognise as Tories, you know, the real, you know, they're not there to help them do the mm. campaign. Indeed, mm. indeed, yes. So I, I also also want to welcome Dr. Alan uh, Wagner. Uh, uh, he's an associate uh, research associate in the UK in Changing Europe Initiative at King's College London. Uh, welcome, Dr. Alan. Hi there, hi there. Uh, welcome to Friday Night Live. Thank you for, for taking the time out to speak to us today. Uh, I, I wanted to perhaps ask yourself uh, in terms of, uh, I, I know there's been lots of um, activity in Parliament that's been happening uh, in terms of uh, the bill that was passed, which managed to get through to, uh, uh, through today, through House of Lords. Uh, perhaps if mm. you can just talk us through that a little bit and what the significance of that is, please. Well, the key thing the bill was trying to do was to ensure that on the 31st of October yeah. the UK will legally be uh, unable to leave the, the European Union without a deal. So it still gives provision if the UK decides to come to a deal and somehow manages to resolve the tensions in Parliament and in the government 
and with the European Union <laughs> over a deal. If it, but but if, if not, then the, the the Prime Minister will have to seek an extension. But that leaves Boris Johnson in it's left George Johnson in a pretty in a pretty tricky situation. He's now mulling over a series of ways he can try and get round that because he sees asking for this extension as a real yes. political problem. And I think a lot of people in Westminster now see this as a big problem for Boris Johnson because of the, the, the pledge upon which he became leader of the Conservative Party and Prime Minister was this do or die on the 31st of October pledge. And the possibility of a reopening for, for Nigel Farage's Brexit party, which is sort of, yeah, the, the oxygen has been sucked out of Nigel Farage's Brexit party over the last month or so upon the arrival of Boris Johnson. This would give a real opening to Nigel Farage if he wanted to take it. The idea that Mr. Boris Johnson has failed in his principal objective as leader of an establishment party of leaving the European Union. No, but I mean, in terms of the the effect it has, uh, surely, I mean, you've got, from a, I guess, from a, some somebody who's, who's not too familiar with, with the, the politics of the thing, you have a deadline of 31st of October, uh, and then you're meant to do some stuff, right? And if you don't do it by 31st of October, you're effectively out. Now, now what, yeah. what what is diff- what's different here? What's the government got to do simply to to stop the date basically rolling on? What what have they got to do? Well, they've, they've, re- they've really got very very few options now. Boris Johnson has the opportunity, so he could he could resign from the government and say, okay, if you want an extension, Jeremy Corbyn, you can do it. I'm not doing it, and then get and then force an election afterwards right. on a on this idea that he is Mr. Brexit and he wasn't willing to do the extension. That's a possibility. Right. And that gives Jeremy Corbyn the keys to 10 Downing Street. And if you're campaigning on the idea that Jeremy Corbyn is a danger in number 10, which is what the Conservative Party will do, they'll be saying, don't give Jeremy Corbyn power in number 10. If they just let him into 10 Downing Street, that'd be a big problem. So he could resign. The other thing is, he could just do the extension and abide by the extension. I mean, or, or he could sort of force a a vote of confidence in himself. So he could be a vote in Parliament where he says to Labour, I mean, you know, vote me down if you want. I mean, so but but does that mean does that does that mean if, if that's the case? I mean, he either resigns or he's voted out or voted down, or whatever. It, it doesn't automatically give uh, Jeremy Corbyn the the reins, does it? Well, if if he, if he literally just resigns, then what the Queen the Queen's option is. The next best place person, and and and, he, and and Boris Johnson refuses to be prime minister, which is, you know, which has within his right. The next best place person to be prime minister, then the Queen calls for, and that is that is the leader of the opposition. That's 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 Jeremy Corbyn. So, right, okay. even even <clears throat> even with you know only mm. children twenty seats, nowhere near half the number of seats, he mm. could be prime minister. These have happened in the nineteen twenties with uh, Labour, the first time the Labour uh, first ever Labour prime minister had a similar number of seats. So. It's, it's a possible scenario that Jeremy Corbyn be, could be the one that goes to get that get that extension. If Boris Johnson sees that as a bit a more politically advantageous position to be in before an election, what, what about the? the um, <coughs> sorry, I was just say one of the options you didn't suggest was that Boris Johnson might actually agree a deal uh, before the thirty first. Do you do you absolutely rule that out? Do you do you, do you see as any prospect of that at all? <laughs> Uh, I mean, you can't rule it out. I mean, if you're looking at it objectively, the contours of the deal are changing the backstop, change the big backstop issue, and there's this route to making it only apply the rules that we, the UK would have to apply to to make Ireland not an issue, only applying to Ireland and bringing that back. I can't see Boris Johnson doing that. It's possible. It's, it's hmm. possible, hmm. 
but I, I, I just don't I just don't think that's where the Boris Johnson project is. Mm. Yeah. I don't think that's what the issue where, where the global protection travel is. I don't think that's likely, but it is legally possible, and that could be one way to mm. fulfil this legal obligation. Actually, to go. And I mean, this, this mm. is the whole thing, isn't it, Doctor Allen? It, it's not. It's not whether we yes or yes or no uh, have Brexit. It, it's the issue that um, that they will not in the Tory party recognise that it was literally, for all intents and purposes, 50-50, but they will not compromise and, and say, OK, it was so close, um, so to keep um, Parliament and therefore uh, the country and the public and, and everyone happy, we're going to have to pragmatically start with a softer Brexit and if we want yeah. something more separate in the future we're going to have to campaign further for it. They want everything now, now, now and mm. the whole thing is what seriously, why they call themselves the Conservative and Unionist Party I really don't know <laughs> because the reality is this could potentially mean war in the six counties again, yep. um, up and down across the border. And it, just on that, just on that, the Tory party should all have stood up to the country and say, for the sake of peace between uh, in Northern Ireland, it's a deal breaker. And, and uh, why they why no one in no one is publicly saying this, I really don't know, because why do they still call themselves conservative and unionist? Because they are not upholding the the union. Because loss of peace in the union in Northern Ireland is breaking the whole. This whole deal breaks the provisions of the 1997 um, Good Friday Agreement. Yeah, uh, leaving it, leaving aside whether you think it's sort of right or wrong, and what the le and what the legalities are of breaking the Good Friday Agreement, it's a big political risk. That Boris Johnson is taking because he's writing off. He's talking about the union. He's writing off those thirteen seats that the, that the Conservative Party has in Scotland. Mm -hmm. They all go. Mm. There's big areas, particularly in the south east and the southwest of England, the places that have that have used to be have long been Conservative heartland, that are more remain than average in the country, and that are potentially going to be lost to the Liberal Democrats, mm. which has tri tripled its share of the vote in the last sort of year. Right, so. Uh, the big gamble is that he can win back seats in the Midlands and the north of England. And that's, a, that's a big ask, given the, given, the, given the deficit he's going to be starting with. Not just losing those 20 MPs this week, but losing those seats in Scotland, changing the whole electoral geography of the Conservative Party. Because they're trying to reshape and redefine what the, as you say, redefine what the Conservative Party is. Make it a Brexit party, basically. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, it, it, it's a really, really pivotal general election that we're going to have very shortly. It's going to be a... I mean, I've got to say this: uh, uh, how things are are going uh, with with the Tory party. Seriously, what are they conserving? Uh, I'm Seriously, what do they think they are conserving? I'm just going to the time with about thirty odd seconds before we go. Just one final <laughs> thought from yourself, Doctor Allen. Uh, we're running short of time. Uh, are we by all these wranglings? Are we not giving a, a strong hand to the Europeans? They're sitting back and just saying this is not going to happen. We can sit back and do nothing. Yeah, well, I think I think I think in a, I think in a sense that is that is right. I don't think there's any deal that is going to be done now until the 31st of October. I think it was 
it, 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 it's it's the, the problem. The problem is though that I don't think there was ever going to be any deal done. I mean, so okay. the logical. Doctor Allen, I'm going to have to say thank you today. Uh, run out of time completely. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much, uh, Doctor Allen, for for another uh, session. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you. Right, listeners, we we'll back after this short break. Assalamu alaikum, this is Atif Nawaz and you're listening to an Inspire FM podcast. Assalamu alaikum, welcome back. You're listening to Inspire FM, uh, Friday Night Live. Uh, this is Zafar Iqbal. Uh, we were discussing Brexit before the break. Uh, we do. I do have with me today co- co-presenting uh, Dr. Abdul, uh, Abu Bakr Cooper and also Chris Nichols, uh, the recently retired head from Sixth Form College. Uh, and we were talking to Dr. Allen and um, and we were just talking about two technical terms. Well, we talked about proroguing, what that meant. Uh, and we also talked about basically the uh, the uh, the uh, the parliamentary parliamentary bill that was passed to actually hand over control uh, to Parliament instead. Uh, so, so we had Dr. Allen talking about that. Uh, we're going to carry on with this topic of discussion for the next half hour uh, or so. We also got obviously some more talented guests that we can talk to. Uh, but in the meantime, we're going to have a little bit of a discussion, I guess, between ourselves in terms of uh, the timetable. And we were talking in the break uh, about the fact that you know the the the, the Tory leadership uh, elections took forever, as we were saying, yeah. took about a month and a half or so. Uh, and yet now we're now fighting for the odd few days to, to get Look, come to an agreement. I, I, I've always said to, to uh, my mother, because uh, she, she's very interested in politics, and we talk about things a lot, and, and, I, and I said to her the whole time with this that this has never been about Brexit. This has only ever been about the Tory party and its direction and what they want to do. Hmm. And... We heard throughout of all of the stagnation with Prime Minister May that, oh, they wanted a leadership thing, da 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 and they didn't do it, da 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 What was the first thing that happened as soon as they got a six-month extension from the EU? Bang, a leadership contest. Mm, indeed. Th- th- this, this if, you actually, if you stop and look at it pragmatically... I personally believe from observation that what the Tory party from their actions uh, literally believe is that the good of the country literally is the Tory party. The good of the country literally is what the Tory party decides and the Tory party's survival. Everything about how Theresa May's deal was tried to get through and um, designed and uh, agreed to by her was about holding together the fractions in her own party. Mm. That was what that whole deal was about. Mm. And the reason why it can't get support and, and and nothing changes, okay, just as one of their own MPs stood up before he crossed over to the opposition benches when he defected, is it's his own party that refuses to compromise. Mm. We don't have a united opinion towards a harsh Brexit. Half the country wanted to leave. You know, we're only quibbling over a 2% swing. Mm. Half of the country want to sway. Pragmatically, and this is what politicians do. 
you compromise. Mm. That's what politics is, finding the middle ground. But they won't do it. Mm. And it's tearing their party apart. The Tory party, which traditionally, uh, as, as Chris and I were, were, were chatting before we were coming on here, what was it you said, Chris? You would traditionally you would look at the Tory party. What what was the phrase? Well, the one thing that they were supreme, always been supremely good at is hanging on to power. That's yeah. What and uh, and I and I said traditionally, yeah, and mm. and I traditionally said you you could you could, whether you agreed with their politics or not, you would you would see the Tory party, like the large oak tree in a gale, in in a storm, it would it would sway a little bit, but it would it would stand strong, it it would be something there that was dependable. Whether you agreed with their 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 policies and politics or not, it would be there. As something dependable, mm -hmm. there uh, is there there is no dependency here. This is literally well. You can't say that it hasn't literally torn the Tory party apart. The Tory party is not a Tory party. Mm. The big hitters, yeah, you know, ministers. For goodness' sake, uh, Mr. Hammond, he was the Chancellor a few weeks ago. Yeah. He's now been kicked out of the entire party. Ken Clark, the father of the house, listeners, that means that means he is the most senior, long-standing male politician of the House of Commons. That's what that means when they say father of the house. And he's just been kicked out of the Tory party. Mm. This whole business is about the Tory party. It's not about what's right for the country. So could I, sorry. Yeah, there's a question that I have, really. I'd be interested in your views, but also perhaps the, the, uh, the uh, next I, I, guest. I, I do have yeah. Professor Colin yeah. Talbot uh, on the line mm. as well. Uh, if I can welcome him. He's, he's the former professor of government at the University of Manchester, uh, research associate at the University of Cambridge and co-director of Cambridge Policy Labs. Uh, welcome, Dr. Colin Talbot. Hello there. Welcome to Inspire FM and Friday Night Live. Thank you for taking the time out and speaking to us today. Uh, we, we are talking about Brexit and we were talking about the fact that there appears to be some issues around the amount of time left before the 31st of October. Uh, and we did have, a, 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 I guess, a discussion around the fact that it took a long time for the Tory party elections to take place. And perhaps that time could have been better spent in coming up with some sort of an agreement right, with the Europeans. Your views on that? Uh, well, this is the second time that's happened. Uh, as you remember, we had a uh, leadership, uh, uh, sorry, a general election. While well, we had the Article Twenty, the first yeah. twenty-four yeah. months. Of, of course, yeah. Lost, <laughs> we had so many elections; it's just hard to remember which one we're talking about, now, is it? Yeah, <laughs> and uh, so, so many we had polls. Sorry. Election uh, yeah. when we had the the main two-year period, and then when we got the six-month extension, we had a Tory leadership election. So. They've not exactly been hurrying themselves along. Uh, and if you remember, actually, it was a very long time before the May government got around to putting any proposals to the EU about exactly what we wanted from Brexit mm. in mm. terms of a withdrawal agreement and a future relationship. Mm. Yeah, that's a big mistake there, was triggering Article 50 <laughs> without a plan. But, but the question I have, and I'd be interested in your view, uh, what I see during this very prolonged period is a, what seems to be a hardening of public opinion, uh, maybe it's apathy or just a simple 
um, hardening of views, but I find it alarming that opinion polls are suggesting that getting on for 40% of the British public would now support a no-deal Brexit, even, it's something like even 20% of Remainers, and it's, it's over 75% of Leavers support a, a no-deal Brexit, which seems very different from, you know, two or three years ago when we were talking about soft Brexits, customs unions, fr- um, free trade areas. Why do you think that's happened, and, and should we be alarmed? Well, I'm a bit sceptical about how far that has happened. I mean, the opinion polls are all over the place, depending on which one you look at. And uh, a lot has to do with the way in which the questions are actually framed. I also think, to be honest, that the vast majority of the public don't know what no-deal Brexit means. Mm, There's been some evidence that people who say, oh, they'd be happy with a no-deal Brexit, they think that means that we just sort of carry on outside of the EU but with the same relationship. Mm. So Mm. I'm I'm very sceptical about how much of a hardening of attitude there has been. I think there is clearly a large minority of the population that want us out uh, whatever the cost, um, and a, a segment of those are inside the Conservative Party. Mm. I mean, some of the views of Conservative Party members are probably a bit more frightening than the general opinion polls mm. because they've said that they would perfectly happily accept losing Scotland and Northern Ireland mm. uh, rather well. than not for Brexit not to happen. Conservative members, yes, in that program. Yeah, that's what I've been mm. saying. They that's are amazing. not, that's they are not well. the Conservative and Unionist Party. So well, drop the word well, Unionist. I mean, the, 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 the clue ought to be in the name. It's, it's Conservative. They ought to be about Conservative. Mm. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly, <laughs> Professor. What I, I said this earlier. I, what are they conserving? No, and I mean, they've become an extremely radical ideological party fixated on this issue of Brexit, which... You know, I mean, frankly, three, four, three or four years ago, well, before the, uh, the David Cameron made the decision to have the referendum, um, the EU was very. Uh, if you did polls on what were people's primary concerns, the EU was barely in the top ten of issues. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't really something that most people were exercised about. Mm. Um, so it's you know it's come mm. to the fore now, obviously, uh, to the point now where it's completely realigning British politics. Can, can I ask you to to um, predict five, ten years' time? What do you think the long-term impact of all this will be on our party system, on parliamentary democracy, on any aspect of the constitution that you'd like to uh, talk about? Well, let, let's deal with the parties first of all. I think. Um, The two main political parties, the two main national parties, Labour and the Conservatives, have been in long-term decline before 2017. I mean, Mm. from the high point in 1951, when they got over 90% of the vote between them, uh, down to the 2015 election, where they were down to uh, barely over half the vote between them, about 60%. Mm. Um, So they've been in long-term decline in terms of support and certainly loyalty of voters. The days when uh, people used to joke about them weighing the Labour vote or the Conservative (laughs) vote in certain constituencies rather than bothering to count it because they were so solid Mm. and long gone. There are very few... Uh, areas now where you've got that sort of loyalty to the two main parties. And 2017 was a sort of a blip 
in which we went back up to uh, just over 80% voting for the two main parties. But that was a polarising effect of, uh, mm. of Brexit, and it's quite clear that a large chunk of the Labour vote, for example, when Labour got about 40% in 2017, uh, was Remain voters going from the Lib Dems and the Greens, uh, and even some Tories, uh, to vote Labour. Uh, Labour's lost... Uh, most of the polling evidence now suggests Labour's lost about 10% of that 40%, mm-hmm. about a quarter of it, mm. has gone to the Liberal Democrats, and about another 5% has gone to uh, the Brexit Party. Mm. Um, mm. So Labour's down, and usually average polling now is around about 25%, compared mm. to 40% at the time of the 2017 election. And a similar thing happened to the Conservative Party. They've lost a large chunk of their votes uh, to the Brexit Party, uh, mm-hmm. and they're down on 33, 34, 35%, mm. um, sometimes a bit lower mm. than that, which is nothing like but they were on 42% of the 2017 election. So will we ever have a so majority the, the government again? <laughs> <a> historic decline, <laughs> mm. and my guess is we're going to see a major realignment. I mean, the mm. last time this happened yeah. was just over 100 years ago when the Liberal Party was replaced by the Labour Party as the main other national party, and I, I think we're in a similar sort of period now. But I don't think it's going to be a swap between who the major parties are. I think we're going to see three, four party politics in England mm. and four and a half, five party politics in Scotland and Wales. That's a good thing, though, isn't it? Uh, well, it would, be, it would <laughs> reflect more what tends to happen in most democratic countries. Mm. I mean, most... Mm. Uh, <coughs> sorry, excuse me. <coughs> Most mature democracies have multi-party systems. Uh, the system where you only have two major parties that we have in the UK and the USA, uh, Australia, not even Canada now has uh, two major parties all the time. There's been some quite uh, huge mm. shifts there. Mm. So it's, it's pretty unusual to just have two parties like this. And it's been happening in other countries. So France, for example, it did for a very long time have a two-party system. Uh, that's crumbled almost completely. And a multi-party system would, would suggest a move away from first-past-the-post then, wouldn't it, to proportional oh, representation? absolutely. And first-past-the-post is incredibly ill-suited to Mm. a multi-party system. I mean, just to give you an example, in 1992, Mm. in the general election in 1992, in one of the Scottish constituencies, there was a four-way split between uh, the Liberal Democrats, the SNP, Labour and the Conservatives, who all got roughly a quarter of the vote each. (laughs) Uh, And the Liberal Democrat was elected on 26% of the vote in that (laughs) constituency. Mm. So 74% of the people in that constituency didn't get... Can I just ask, ask you to, to explain a, a little bit more about, I know it's pr- probably uh, not necessarily going to be the outcome, but w- what does no deal Brexit hold for us then, if, if that is the... the... Uh, well, there, <laughs> there is no such thing as a no deal Brexit. I mean, right. we can leave the European Union without a, without a deal. Yeah. Uh, we will immediately have to negotiate a whole series of deals. Mm. Um, People think the EU membership is just about trade, but of course it's not. It's about a whole host of other things. Uh, I mean, just to give you one example, uh, the airline industry, my eldest stepson's an airline pilot. He's based in Paris. Mm. He's English. He's married to a French woman. They've got a kid. 
Uh, his airline license is was based in Britain. He's had to consider shifting that to register in a European country. Sure. His uh, uh, his company's aeroplanes fly from a company which was based in the UK and has had to relocate his headquarters to Holland. Mm. His residency status in France will be uh, in question. None of those things have anything to do with the trading relationship hmm. with the EU. Yeah. Um, uh, and there's a whole host of things like that around security and other forms of cooperation, which we will have to negotiate deals about. So there's no way we can live as a sort of in splendid isolation off the coast of France and Holland without the, those sorts of relationships, never mind the, the importance of the economic relationship. And, and, and that, that presumably is, is one of these uh, uh, long-term things, that these things will be discussed and agreed individually between UK and individual countries over the num number of years, I guess. Well, it would, they would have to be, all of those things would have to be agreed with the EU because they're all okay. governed yeah. by the EU structures and institutions, so we couldn't negotiate bilateral agreements yeah. with France. And, but you, you would have thought a lot, a lot of these would have been discussed so far and they've been agreed on. No, they haven't. They uh, haven't I at mean, all. They were discussed to some extent in the withdrawal agreement. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of things in, I mean, everybody focuses about the withdrawal agreement, about this Irish backstop issue, which is incredibly important and everybody ignored before the mm. referendum. Um, but there's a whole host of other things in the backstop agreement. That's why it's 600 odd pages or whatever it is, mm. um, covering a whole range of things from medical devices sure. through to airline regulation, security cooperation, uh, policing cooperation, European arrest warrant, you know, that, loads and loads of different things which are covered mm. by it. All of those go out the window if we leave without any sort of withdrawal agreement and we'd have to go back to to square one and start renegotiating them all over again. And, and interestingly... And on, the free, on the trade agreement bit, I mean, I, I, nobody who knows anything about trade agreements believes that we could negotiate a fresh trading arrangement with the EU in anything under about three, four, five years um, mm. it would take. And in the meantime, uh, there'll be huge economic dislocation as a result of leaving without a deal. And that, of course, is going to have an impact on people's livelihoods and jobs, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I mean, we've had 40 years of increasingly integrated European economies uh, and businesses and uh, just-in-time deliveries for um, components in things like the car industry. Mm. Uh, ironically enough, uh, all of that was accelerated by the introduction of the single market, which Margaret Thatcher was the driving yeah. force behind. Mm. Uh, you know, it was Britain mm. that pushed for the single market integration. Just, as soon as you pull <laughs> that apart, mm. it caused huge economic dislocation. And, and this is supposed to be about getting back sovereignty or increasing our own sovereignty. And yet listening to you talking about how everything will have to be negotiated with Europe, 27 countries against one, it sounds like there's a significant loss of sovereignty coming up. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's a myth about national sovereignty in a globalised and interdependent world where we rely on imports and exports of all sorts of goods and services and people want to travel and live and work in different places. Um, it, 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 it's impossible to be completely sovereign and independent. Mm. You have to come to all sorts of trade agreements with other people. I mean, one of the ironies is that the 
uh, the, the hard Brexiteers keep saying, oh, well, we can, we can retreat to trading on World Trade Organization <laughs> rules. Well, the World Trade Organization is just another way of sharing sovereignty between mm. countries mm. because agreements made through the World Trade Organizations are compromises mm. about the rules under which trade is governed. Um, and, you know, it's no different from the EU in that respect. It's not not mm. as powerful as the EU, and it's not as integrated as the EU, but it's just another way of sharing sovereignty between countries. Mm. But it, it, the agreement that, that has been drafted so far, uh, which, which bit of it is, is basically... Uh, contentious and, and which bit of it is, is the one that, that's causing lots of divisions in, in Parliament? Well, it would depend who you ask. I mean, for the majority <laughs> of the Conservative, uh, the arguments being primarily around this Irish backstop issue, right. which frankly, I, I, you know, I mean, I follow this stuff in detail and I still don't really understand what their objection is. If uh, if, as they say, it's, it's relatively easy to put in alternative arrangements for the Northern Ireland, Republic of Ireland border. Yeah, why are they worried the about the backstop? Would never come into play. <laughs> mm. Yeah. So yeah. why are they so worried about it? What's, you know, what's yeah, the problem? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so if they that, were so that's, e that's one issue. Yeah, if they were so um, easy to put in place, the backstop... Ne if they really, truly believed that these measures that they keep talking about were so easy to put in place, they wouldn't be worried about the backstop, would they? No, absolutely. No. And, I mean, it's a smokescreen, isn't it? It's a smokescreen. The EU and the Republic of Ireland have been asking for, well, well what are these measures um, for two years or more now? And they still haven't come up with anything. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Just um, keep hearing so, about trusted I mean, trader schemes. <laughs> Yeah, uh, so I mean that's the main issue for quite a lot of Tories, I think. But what's interesting is that the the ERG European Research Group wing of the Conservative Party has been making noises off, saying, um, "Well, it's not just about the backstop. There's a lot of other things that are wrong with the withdrawal agreement." Uh, I mean, they they don't like the withdrawal agreement at all. Full mm. stop. But mainly because, just to be clear for your listeners, mm. what the withdrawal agreement is. The withdrawal agreement is basically the divorce settlement with the EU. Mm -hmm. it's, what do we pay them? Uh, how you know? How long is it before we move out of the house? Yeah. How do you divide up the CD collection if anybody's got CDs? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, you know, all of those sorts of things and. But it lasts for two years, uh, and, and for that two years, everything stands still. So mm. we remain part of the customs union, we remain part of the single market, we remain part of all the other mm. institutions like the European Medicines Agency and, and so on and so forth. Uh, and then at the end of that two years, we're supposed to have negotiated what the final arrangement would be. So the argument at the moment is largely about what happens for that two years. There's, there's hardly any discussion at all of what happens after that. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think for the first time this week, when uh, Mr. Frost, the Prime Minister's Sherpa, as they call them, went <laughs> to Brussels and outlined what they wanted to do, for the first time the British government said, well, what they want is a Canada-style mm -hmm. free trade agreement with the EU for the future, which is not what they said up till now. They've left it very vague up till now. Right, okay, and what, what what does that imply then? I mean, Canada style? Um, well, the deal with Canada is a deal about, uh, uh, only about goods, it's not about services, and 80% right. of our 
economic relationship with the EU countries is, is sale so, of services, so, so it mm. would exclude an awful lot of economic activity, wouldn't, wouldn't be included mm. in it. Um, and it's basically just a minimum tariffs arrangement between Canada and the EU. So it would say we would have minimum tariffs mm. with the EU uh, after we'd left. It doesn't deal with, and this is, uh, you may have heard people saying Canada plus plus. Mm. Well, the plus plus bits are all the things like security cooperation and uh, arrest warrants and sharing criminal checks and all those sorts of things. I mean, just, just one thing to point out how idiotic some of this stuff can get. Uh, if you remember uh, a couple of weeks ago, the Home Office announced they were going to tight up on criminal records checks. Uh, of people wanting to enter the country from the EU 27 right. after we'd left on October the 31st. One slight problem with that, if we leave on October the 31st without a deal with the EU, we lose all access to European criminal records. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So we can't check any of them. <laughs> so they can make the announcements as much as they like, but they wouldn't have any way of actually implementing it. Mm. Mm. Interesting. Mm. Can you see any prospect at all of a deal before the 31st of October? No. Uh, I can't see how... Uh, well, I, it, it's impossible to negotiate a, a, a reframed withdrawal agreement in the time but scale. Professor, um, where's, the, where's the negotiating team? Where's the British well, negotiating team? He hasn't sent anybody over there. Really? There's no. nobody over there negotiating. Well, but also, I mean, to be honest, now, now that a general election is in play and uh, whatever happens, we're clearly going to have a general election in the right. next two or three months, there's no incentive at all for the yeah. EU to negotiate anything very much because uh, they don't know who they're going to be dealing with. Right. Okay, Professor Talbot, well, we're running out of time. It's been really fascinating right. discussing Brexit with yourself. You've been crystal clear in your responses, and it's been highly entertaining. Thank I've you. definitely enjoyed it. Thank you, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, thank you Professor. Thank you. Have a lovely weekend. Okay, <laughs> listeners, uh, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about something slightly different. We're going to talk about education, and we have the best people for, uh, to, do, to talk about that in the house. Thank you very much. Stay tuned. You're listening to an Inspire FM podcast, making available our popular programmes from our daily broadcast on Inspire FM. Assalamualaikum, welcome back. You're listening to Inspire FM uh, Friday Night Live. Uh, my name is Zafar Iqbal. We were talking about Brexit uh, before the break. We had Professor... Colin Talbot, um, I hope I pronounced his name right, it's Talbot, Talbot, uh, uh, and very, very articulate, uh, and he, he basically clarified a lot of things that I had basically heard people talk about, but uh, I guess didn't know one way or the other uh, to whether to, how to, to form an opinion uh, on that, and I think he was very clear on some of these things. Uh, very, okay, so we want to move on to a slightly different topic now. Uh, we want to talk about uh, education and we want to talk in particular about uh, for the benefit of those, I guess, who are thinking about going to university next year, thinking about applying to universities uh, and whether they're considering degrees at university, the traditional degrees uh, or now degree apprenticeships or apprenticeships. 
Um, and I think what what's the right choice for them. Uh, and I also want to talk a little bit about transition from GCSEs to A-levels. I think there's a big big gap uh, between GCSEs and A-levels. And I think some, some students sometimes, you know, uh, find it a little difficult uh, to transition. So we're going to talk about that. So uh, I guess we've got the right people, as I said before the break, uh, on uh, on the panel. Uh, some co-presenting. We've got Chris Nichols, who's uh, the uh, the recent re recently retired principal of Sixth Form College. Uh, we also have um, a teacher, a science teacher, uh, and a former doctor. I have to say, Abu Bakr Cooper, who's who's with us today, co-panelling. Uh, and we're also fortunate to, to have one of our own, uh, Abdul Qadir. Uh, you might have heard his voice on on many a show uh, here in in Swire FM. And uh, he's, he's taken a particular route uh, to get his degree. So we're going to try and sort of see, uh, yeah, basically get the pros and cons of, of different options that are available to the youngsters today. Uh, if I can go to, uh, if uh, if you can talk a little bit about your choice. I think you decided that you want to do a degree apprenticeship. Yeah, that's right. Right. Uh, perhaps you can talk a little bit about, I mean, it doesn't sound to me like a proper degree. Uh, perhaps you can talk about what that means. Sure. Uh, so degree of apprenticeship, it's, I suppose, it's like a normal apprenticeship uh, where you are working and studying at the same time. Uh, however, with a degree of apprenticeship, you're obviously going to uni. Um, normally, well, with this one, you're going to uni once a week uh, and you're, at the end of it, getting a full degree out of it. Um, and you're getting paid at the same time without having to pay the tuition fees. Right, okay. So the big plus is is that uh, you don't end up with a big debt afterwards. That sounds like a win-win. It, it does sound like a win-win. Um, uh, but I guess I guess if you're going one day a week, it's going to probably take you a while to get a degree, your degree, right? Uh, no, it's actually uh, pretty much the same time. It's Three years? Four, four years. Four years, okay. But... Uh, with normal degrees, you have the option of taking a placement year. Mm. Uh, with this one, you don't. You're spending those four years studying. Mm -hmm. And basically, you're cramming in a week's worth of lectures and content into the one day that you're going into uni. Mm. Sounds like hard work. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> it, it is, it is, is it more intensive, do you think, then? 100%. Um, from the very start, I was told, well, we were told that um, if uni is like the army, what we're doing is like SAS, right. simply put. But um, yeah, it's 100% tougher. Um, you don't get to relax as normal uni students may be able to. You obviously won't have the uni life uh, that most people want. Uh, but at the end of it, I think all of that is worth it. Yes, because yeah. you get to save on probably about 40 grand's worth of debt. Yeah, exactly. But you're getting paid at the same time as well. Are you getting paid in your work? Yep, I am. Yeah. Right, and you're in a company at the moment, so you're That's working right. four days a week. You're um, working one day at university. That's right, yeah. Right, so where do you get time to study then, um, you know, homework and stuff? Uh, so homework, normally after work, weekends or, uh, well, my I'm not too sure whether it's every single workplace, but uh, my workplace is fairly uh, lenient with doing work at, at work. Um, so if I want to take some time off, maybe book a meeting room or something, they'll allow me to do that. Right, okay. Yeah. So, so can I say, how difficult was it to find a degree apprenticeship? How competitive was it? What did you have to go through to do it? Well, actually finding a degree apprenticeship was fairly tough. Um, you can't really find that many. Uh, however, 
the strange thing is I was expecting it to be quite competitive for this particular position that I was applying for. Mm-hmm. Um, it was almost like you were applying for a normal job. You were going through, you were going through like an interview process and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. However, um, there were only 12 people at the interview stage. I'm not too sure how many they've eliminated before that uh, through the application stage. However, uh, yeah, there were only 12 people and at the end, six people five or six people were selected so you had 50 50 chance for this particular position but i can't say for a general mm. yeah. i'm sure there were a lot more than 12 initially applying most likely yeah <laughs> you did very well so there. Thank you. what's the nature of the work that you do then Abdul? uh it's networking uh computer science but specialize in networking right, right. Mm. so so they actually give you you're actually working in networking or is that what you're studying uh well okay so i'm working in networking i'm in the networking team uh, within the uh, tele- telecommunications team uh, but with the degree I'm doing a computer science mm. degree uh, but I'll be specialised in networking right mm. but but the thing is uh, I mean you come straight out of college yep. uh, and this company trusted you to do a proper job or is it is it not a proper job it 100% is a proper job however obviously you're trained up mm. to be able to uh, work at the same level as your colleagues brilliant mm. sounds and how does the salary compare with somebody who's doing the the, fu- the job of five days, and but not doing the apprenticeship? Is there a big difference? Oh, 100%. There is a big mm. difference, but I'd say that it's a lot higher than what your maybe your normal apprenticeship would be like uh, mm. if you're going college, uh, as well as you, you have to remember that they're also investing in you for university, so they're paying that uh, nine grand or so uh, a year mm. plus your normal salary. So I guess it would add up to be roughly mm. normal salary, uh, mm. normal starting wage. Mm. So in the end, I'd say it's it mm. could be about the same. Right. I mean, it's, it strikes me that what you've got is the absolute best of, of both worlds. It's a fantastic mm. opportunity, and you've obviously done really well to get it. You're going to have a degree. You're being paid. You're not getting the... You're not having to pay the fees. You're not taking the loan. Yeah. Um, and you've got a great job. And by the end of the four years, not only will you have a degree, but you'll be really experienced and probably already being promoted within the job. I have a question, really, for, for most people thinking about apprenticeships. If you think back to the college, back to, you know, um, young people of 17, 18, doing A-levels, doing B-techs, and yep. thinking university or apprenticeships, the default position typically in many, many families, and I know it's a family thing, um, it's, oh, it's got to be a degree. Um, you know, we're not, we, don't, we don't think apprenticeships is right. What would you say now from, from your perspective to, to you know, a, a kind of family where they're having that discussion? What, what sort of thing would you advise them to think about? I'd say definitely keep your mind open. Um, I mean... For some people, maybe university is the right choice, depending on what you want to do. However, an apprenticeship or a degree apprenticeship, it gives you that experience to allow you to uh, kind of like segue into uh, maybe some type of field that you want to actually do in the future. Um, If not, then you'll just get experience out of it, which is 100% a bonus. Um, So, yeah, definitely keep your options uh, Mm. open and... um, I love, the way, I love the way you use that as a verb. You segue your way in. So we're going to be taking a, sh- a short break uh, shortly for the azan. Uh, but I wanted to open up the debate a little bit. So that's all fine and well what you're what you're saying, uh, but it's actually 
vocational work, isn't it? I mean, if you're kind of like doing a degree in, say, I don't know, um, politics or history, you're not going to have that option, are you? I presume not, no. It's very specific to the type of job mm-hmm. you want to do, 100%. Right, okay, so we're going to take a short, short break. Uh, in a minute. So I think, Chris, I think you may be able to come in here. Uh, Chris, so it's very specific, and it's the old argument between vocational and academic mm. studies, really, isn't it? Mm. Academic studies being, you know, mm. you're, you're being trained to think, uh, you're being educated to think because of the person rather than for mm. a job, mm. isn't it? Mm. Is that still argument relevant, do you reckon? Oh, it's a hugely important issue, this. It's something that Britain has got wrong consistently mm. since since 1945, when, you know, without going back into history you know our current education system really traces its roots back to then um and they made an attempt to have a vocational pathway there's a you know there's a three part three part system and they've never got it right and vocational qualifications have always and fe colleges as part of that have always been seen as as kind of something for other people's children to do second rate oh if you're not good enough to go to university then do a vocational course or do an apprenticeship and if you look at the experience of other successful European countries, Germany is the one people most often quote, where there's never been that issue about vocational education being you know, something for second-class citizens. That's one of the reasons why they're doing so much better than us in, in terms of manufacturing technical um, kind of professions. So I, the good news, it's changing. It's changing fast, actually, at the moment. Mm-hmm. And it's great to hear about... Yeah, we're we're going to take a short uh, break for Azan, and we'll be back uh, after this. Salam alaikum, welcome back. You're listening to Inspire FM. Uh, This is Friday Night Live. My name is Zafar Kabal. We're discussing education. We're discussing, in particular, degrees versus degree apprenticeships. Right, okay. So I just wanted to clarify uh, the difference. I think people might, might get confused between apprenticeships and degree apprenticeships. Uh, so we were talking about that in, in a break, Chris. Uh, perhaps you can explain uh, the the potential for misconception uh, here. Well, I, I suppose apprenticeships come at different levels. So you can do a, an apprenticeship at, at 16 after GCSEs. You could do an apprenticeship after A-levels. You could do an apprenticeship after you've done de- your degree. Um, the degree apprenticeship... Is, is pretty special, as we were saying earlier, where you're actually combining uh, the two. And, and it's, it's, if you can find an opportunity and actually be successful, then you've done really, really well. But the, the apprenticeships come you know, at those different levels, really. So there's an option of doing them, really, at, at any level, really, from, mm-hmm. from 16 onwards. Right. Uh, I want to bring in uh, Sufian Sadiq. I think his, his line's dropped. I may have to try him again. Uh, but I think we were talking again in a break about uh, people's perceptions and people's view of, of apprenticeships versus, I, I guess, a degree. And I think within the, the Luton community, I think there's a view that, that you know, uh, degrees are must, right? And it's something mm-hmm. that that. And I think there, there is an argument for that as well, because I think the parents want to see that, that children do the, the best they can or... Um, do the best for them as as, as much as I can, uh, but what you're saying is is that that uh, there are many options. Routes open now at the moment. 
Yeah, well, the, the truth is that some people, quite a number of people that go and do degree, to take a degree, end up in employment that they could, actually could have done after A-levels. Mm, um, so, mm. you know, there, there isn't really sufficient degree level uh, opportunities available. Mm. Uh, and it, it's simplistic to say, well, it's things like media. Why? But it isn't, it isn't about that. It's, it's a, a lot to do with the, the individual person, you know, how they network, what opportunities they find for themselves, simply how hard they're prepared to work, you know. I know it's a very old-fashioned thing to say, but it is really important to work hard. <laughs> We've heard already about, you know, how tough it is on this degree apprenticeship, but, you know, there's no short place to no, no shortcut to any place worth going to, as they say. Brilliant. Okay, uh, he's been patiently waiting, Sufian. Uh, thank you very much. I, I know uh, you had to cut you off for a little bit, uh, but uh, I guess the question for you is: is which one would you go for? Which one would you advise? Uh, apprenticeships, degree apprenticeships, or degree? And and where where is your I guess heart set on? Can you hear me, Sufian? Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Wa alaikum salam. Uh, sorry, yes, I can hear you. Uh, I, I think really, in terms of uh, options, uh, you know, as the saying goes, that it's horses for courses. It, it would vary uh, from each young person, uh, depending on what route they want to take, what career they want to take. So it's, it's very easy. Sometimes I hear people say, oh, when they're giving advice, I wouldn't recommend you doing BTEC. Oh, I wouldn't recommend you going to university and you should only do a degree apprenticeship, for example, or an apprenticeship. Uh, it varies, and I think that's the, the key thing is there is an element of choice both at post-16 and at higher education. It's about giving young people the right education in terms of uh, their choices, what's out there, what are the options, and which options suit them the best depending on their skills, their experience, and also what kind of career they want to go into. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you've given a very sort of careers advisor's view. Uh, what, would you, what would you advise your children? <laughs> uh, well, na- na- naturally, I, I think if, if you had a... Uh, it depends on, again, the ability. So if, I, if, if, if my child was academically very able, yeah. uh, then I would be pushing for them to do A-levels, and, and I'm honest, uh, I have these conversations almost daily in the last couple of weeks since the results have come out, and I'm saying to people, if they're seven, eights, and nines, the typicality across their grades in GCSEs, then A-level is the right route for them. If they're looking for something like medicine, and I, I'm probably very typical that uh, I, I can't say that I wouldn't be very happy if my daughter and son decided to be doctors. I'd be over the moon. <laughs> yeah. and therefore, I, therefore, I would suggest that they would take the A-level route in that case if they were very academically able. However, we also know that not every child is necessarily uh, a grade 9 student. Mm. And therefore, the BTEC route, I think, sometimes, and, and this is my own experience, sometimes... Families, parents, and even young people see BTEC uh, as almost a negative option. I think it's almost a swear word, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, it's almost, no, but it is. You're actually right. That's the way some young people uh, use that word as well. Uh, It's almost a cuss, so to say, as they say, oh, my God, look at you, you're a BTEC. 
But actually, if you look at the way BTEX have evolved over the last 15 yeah. years or so, it, you can get in. I've had students with BTEX go into Durham University. I've, I've had people go into Queen Mary's and, uh, and uh, some of the really top universities, SOAS, City. So it's not like BTEX isn't an option. Uh, for some, for somebody with a grade six or grade five, as a typicality, actually, the chance of them getting an A star and A level is quite limited. Mm. The chance of them getting a distinction star mm. at a BTEC is a lot higher, but it carries the same mm. uh, amount of UCAS points. Mm. So, I, I w and sometimes I find it very hard, especially when when I used to give advice to young people about what to take next. Parents used to be standing there insisting, no, 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 but I want A-levels, I want A-levels. Mm. And I'm saying, even though that the young person will only get perhaps Ds or Cs at best, mm. and then mm. not have, still end up in a university that is quite low down in the rankings as opposed to what they can get into if they have the distinction stars. So it, it, does, it is changing, it though, isn't it, Sufian? Wouldn't you say that that resistance... To BTEC, wouldn't I? You know, I, I I really think it's changed a lot in the last ten years or so. And it, it, it has indeed. I, I was uh, head of vocational education at Luton Sixth College, and we we the exponential growth just in the last five years or six years. Uh, at the moment, uh, uh, I think the college will be sitting at about. They've got over three thousand young people at the college, and they'll probably have uh, fifteen hundred plus. Mm. Uh, young people engaged in BTEC qualifications of some mm. sort, vocational qualifications. But I, I thought these BTEC qualifications were being being reduced, if not phased out, in the new curriculum. No, they're not. I, I think mm. what what it, it was changing in terms of uh, when the move from having fully vocational in terms of only coursework based, a lot of the a lot of the BTECs have been revamped. Yeah. Uh, some, uh, some of them, they've made a slightly narrower option in terms of how many different BTEC or vocational options are available. There's an examination element that's been brought into a number of uh, the vocational uh, qualifications. Uh, and with the technical qualifications, they've got a lot more emphasis on work experience. So that mm. kind of provides it with, uh, perhaps some people would say, a lot more rigor and less room for people uh, who lack integrity to exploit that qualification, which has happened around the country. Okay, right. So we're, we're I think we're running out of time, uh, Sophia. And thank you very much for for being waiting patiently and giving your views on, on the subject. Uh, and Zakala have for your your uh, conversation. Yeah, okay. Uh, just uh, in the last minute or so, Abdul Qadir, perhaps if you wanted to sort of, uh, we we did say there are limited options, I mm. guess, in terms of degree apprenticeships. Uh, how hard was it to, for you to s find out what you wanted to do and then find something in, in that field? So after, well, as I was coming to the end of uh, A-levels at Lucian Sixth Form, I wasn't 100% sure what I wanted to do. Right. Um, but it was actually one of the presenters here at Inspire FM that actually advised me to do a degree. It wasn't me, was it? No, it wasn't you, unfortunately. All right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so he recommended me to do a degree uh, in which I just thought, is there a degree apprenticeship? Because I honestly, I never heard of it. Um, so that made me, well, I started looking for them. Um, it was very hard to find. And uh, I think 
If you well, want what, to, what are the different t- different options that you explored? I know you settled on yep. one. Yep. So I wasn't looking for a university route. Uh, I wanted either a normal job or an apprenticeship. Mm. Uh, but then I happened to find a degree apprenticeship. Right. But but the the different types of degree apprenticeships out there. So you went for. Um, networking and computer studies. Computer but what, what are the what other ones available? You saw honestly, I'm not sure because I was looking just, just for computer science. Computer science yeah, and so you're pretty focused on what you wanted to do. Uh, Chris, can fi- I just decide? Final words, yeah, yeah, can I just decide why you decided you didn't want to go to university? That's quite uh, unusual. Mainly cost and uh, the fact that employment isn't guaranteed at the end of it. Mm. Mm. So that's a very sensible he's a very do. sensible person isn't he yeah. and very hard working as well <laughs> listeners uh, unfortunately we've run out of time uh, until next week thank you very much for listening uh, I hope you find uh, found the, uh, the discussions useful and entertaining if you have come back to us again next uh, week and perhaps you'll want to phone in and take part thank you very much thank you for listening to our podcast We stream our daily broadcast on inspirefm.org. You'll find all our daily updates on our social media at inspirefmluton.